everybody and welcome to Perspective episode number 13. I think so, yeah. Oh, As you can see, we're lost with numbers, but yeah. it's okay. It doesn't matter. The numbers are not important. The actual episode is. And today, I think very chilled episode. And also, I think very appropriate for the um, time, the summer. We are going traveling. We are going to mountains. We are going to nature. And this will be the main topic today. And I want to start to uh, bring you close. Well, close. To bring you something for the episode. If you have time, we will also post it on our Facebook page. But if you have time, Google what a wonderful word with David Edinburgh. BBC One did a video promoting just their nature programs. They're very famous of making them. And it's essentially David Attenborough reading What a Wonderful World song. And there is nature in the background. Oh, So, like, it brings you a smile every yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Well, trees of green, skies of blue. Oh, yeah. And like with his voice and it's like and you can hear in his voice that he's kind of in that happy mood. So also the lyrics are making you smile and you see the little monkeys, the waterfalls, the flowers. It's oh, it's Mm. it's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is so much to say about nature and honestly, The literary, (laughs) of course, references I could make are infinite. I think that one thing I want to say is, please, if you're interested in this, just go read, like, the whole works of Emily Dickinson. Um, Like, really, in my opinion, the um, writers who have written about nature in the most glorious ways are American. This is really their field. I cannot... Because, I mean, it's understandable. I mean, their culture is about the next frontier and about exploration and about discovery of the wilderness. The wilderness has a lot to do with their history and their culture. So I think that American writers have been the ones that have explored nature um, from a literary point of view, of course, in um, the most memorable ways, or at least the ones I like the most. <laughs> so, yeah, that is actually one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I'm so fascinated with American literature, because it has this element of nature that European na- literature doesn't have. Well, it's surprising to me because I, the little of Polish literature that I studied in high school, I would guess... 70 80 percent of that is something to do with nature Hmm. there's one this is crazy for me that i even remember Mm. so our most famous poet i think is adam mickiewicz and his work is mainly focused around nature not necessarily about the nature but just using the nature to show you Things there is, for example, one um, I don't know how to call it. I'm I suck at literature, as <laughs> you can worry. hear. Um, but there is a one poem, let's call it in my simple terms, that is using the Rosebery fields to compare to the woman how she's beautiful, and so there is also a lot of 
literature nature in the Polish stuff, but I also know that not a lot of the stuffs are translated into other languages, mm-hmm. which sometimes, and this is, uh, I um, took upon the challenge of translating one of the poems from like 1800s, because uh, my friend here in on EVS, he really liked one of the poems and he translated one part by himself without knowing Polish, by the way, which was very impressive okay, from my wow. side. The translation was kind of garbage, <laughs> but oh, if you tried. don't know Polish, but he tried. And what I, I thought, uh, because I started looking what kind of poem it is in full, and I thought I will translate uh, the whole thing for him. I said that not knowing that it's three parts uh, of poems. Every part has uh, four verses. So it was three pages <laughs> to yeah. translate from Polish that is used in 1800s. Mm, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, halfway through, I was like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> but the whole thing was about the forest. Beautiful. How wild it is, but also how um, we explore it, the good, the bad parts, the light, the dark. Everything was about the forest. But this poem, at the beginning, I was looking, maybe there is some translation. Maybe there is, like, because it was in the book of of poems, maybe they translated the book of poems because they did other uh, of his works, but not this one. And... It's very hard to translate these poems. I was stuck for so many times because the problem with old Polish is as well. I understand it just because our majority high school education is in that era using that old Polish. So if you pay just a little bit attention in classes, you can easily understand the poem the language itself as well, but to actually then be able to translate with having the same meaning, it's a whole nother case. Yeah, of course. So I'm grateful for the American nature (laughs) because at least we can understand it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And um, of course, I mean, I mentioned Emily Dickinson before because Emily Dickinson is undoubtedly probably... No, undoubtedly, without probably, undoubtedly the queen of uh, nature poetry, of course. But I think, I mean, apart from quoting her whole works in full, there is no other way of talking about her poetry, in my opinion, because it's so complex. You really, really need to. I We should talk for four hours just about her. But if you take the three major uh, fathers of American uh, literature, with uh, which are Thoreau, Emerson, and uh, Whitman. I mean, basically, you just hear the name Thoreau, Emerson, and Whitman, and you think nature li- literature, of course. I mean, it's full of nature everywhere. And the nice things, the, the very interesting thing about their writing, of course, Let's contextualize. These guys were writing at a time when we had no notions of ecological interconnectedness. I mean, okay, I mean, these guys were living at that time uh, in the history of our planet. But still, even though they had some remains of that colonial uh, mindset, colonial both towards people but also towards the environment, 
they all three of them have this um, feeling that nature is something they belong to um, rather than something that belongs to them. And um, I'll just read to you a passage from Thoreau because that's the best way. He said, um, he wrote in his journal, In the street and in society, I am almost invariably cheap and dissipated. My life is unspeakably mean. No amount of gold or respectability would in the least redeem it, dining with the governor or a member of Congress. But alone in distant woods or fields, in unpretending sprout lands or pastures tracked by rabbits, even on a black and to most cheerless day, like this, when a villager would be thinking of his inn, I come to myself. I once more feel myself grandly related, and that the cold and solitude are friends of mine. I suppose that this value in my case is equivalent to what others get by church-going and prayer. I come to my solitary woodland walk as the homesick go home. It is as if I always met in those places some grand, serene, immortal, infinitely encouraging, though invisible companion, and walked with him. And I think this is incredible, because... Sure, I mean, there has been literature about nature, but here, you see, it's not about conquering nature. It's being one with it. Exactly. He said he feels related. He says he feels like he's going home. So once again, it's not nature that belongs to him as a possession he can exploit, but it's him who belongs to nature. Of course, again... Emily Dickinson explored this much deeply and but again we should talk about her during this whole podcast but I think this is important because I think this is the direction we should be going I mean normally we try not to make any moral judgments here in this podcast and it's all about trying to see things from different perspectives but here i really really think in my opinion it's important we do go in this direction of exploring this interconnectedness with nature because at least in my opinion we need to understand that there is no distinction between us and the environment we always had this idea which is very western and very european um, of understanding the environment as something external from us you know we are the center and there is the environment and it is there it is given to us by god so that we exploit it for our our ends it's not true I mean, at least in my opinion, it's important that we understand that it's not like this. But I do agree in this case, because there's many, many studies and even pictures. You don't need a study to see. Even today, I was looking at something and there was like a gallery of pictures uh, that was like, take a second look. And one picture was when there was forest on one side of the picture. And then you can see the clear line of uh, just like dirt and roads. And I thought at the beginning that it's just like this. There is a dirt road. Turns out, no, the other part is the deforestation that we are doing. Or um, recently there's a very big news it's not even news for me, it's a catastrophic, uh, that places where divers would go to to see the beautiful underwater 
environment, there's just plastic and garbage. And there is a picture as well of uh, a guy surfing. And like in the movies, like you surf and the waves are closing behind you. It's a beautiful picture. The problem with that was the waves that were closing behind him was full of garbage and plastic and bottles and um, foil bags. So, yeah. And I must say that you mentioned the BBC before. I mean, they're the ones who are doing Blue Planet, right? Yes. I mean, that's one of the programs of um, informational, uh, divulgative scientific programs in general public programs that for me have done a great deal of good in um, in s- making people sensitive to to the fact that I mean they are contributing to the destruction of the planet also with the second blue planet that they released last year they were releasing uh, short videos and the whole campaign was uh, around and uh, as well and uh, the campaign was that um, there was one scientist from university of somewhere. I'm sorry, I don't remember. And he looked at many, like hundreds of studies uh, about nature. And the conclusion was that if even by watching a nature movie, if, be it a documentary or just somebody with a camera recording the world around you, you feel happier just by watching it. But if you would go actually explore, then can uh, reduce your stress, bring more happiness, bring more the quiet and the inner peace. And especially in the young kids, the stress would... Not even the stress in your kids, because kids don't stress... Uh, but the aggressiveness, yeah, it would go you know, down. It's so funny. Like, okay, this is really amazing. I was thinking about this video today because today I like for some reasons I I, I will not tell you, but uh, I was uh, I woke up and I was humming to myself the song from the Jungle Book, The Bare Necessities. So. And in the video, this video that you sent me, there is uh, footage of this bear scratching his back to work against the tree, like in in the Jungle Book when Baloo is singing this song. And I was thinking about this bear, like this actual bear, not a cartoon bear, and thinking about this song, and it made me so happy. (laughs) So yeah, I completely agree. It works. If you see a bear scratching their back against a tree, it makes you happy. Yeah, of course. And, um, but it's true that in general, uh, I have, um, I don't think it's just a personal feeling. I mean, I tend to feel very calm in nature because I feel like I am home, as Thoreau did. But I really believe that um, to feel that we are interconnected with everything and everything living and non-living around us makes us feel good because it makes us feel responsible for it and so it makes us want to be better you know i you know i remember there is this uh, podcast i listened to um 
it's called On Being. I mentioned this in several episodes already. I really, really, really love this podcast. And uh, once they interviewed uh, Joanna Macy. This woman is incredible. She is a Buddhist scholar and she is a philosopher of ecology. And like this woman worked for the CIA and uh, like, I mean, amazing. And she became a translator of um, Rainer Maria Rilke uh, and his poetry. And you know how hard translating poetry is. And uh, the, he, she was interviewed by uh, Krista Tippett on uh, the podcast on being. And uh, she said something that stuck into my mind. I remember listening i listened to this podcast so many times but every time she says this it's amazing how much this struck me this struck me again and again for how synthetic her thought is phrased how th- synthetically her thought is is phrased and she says We've been treating the earth as if it were a supply house and a sewer. We've been grabbing, extracting resources from it for our cars and our hair dryers and our bombs. And we've been pouring the waste into it until it's overflowing. But our earth is not a supply house and a sewer. It's our larger body. We breathe it. We taste it. We are it. And it's incredible how she managed to like if again if i cut the the sentence uh, with a few line breaks it would be a beautiful poem i mean it is our larger body and again the minute we realize it is our larger body we realize we are responsible towards it and so we try to become better people and i feel that now at, at least in literature, but also in our common understanding, there is this idea that we need to, first of all, realize that there is this interconnectedness, and also that we need to start thinking in time lapses that are a little bigger than ourselves. You know, we need to start understanding that the consequences of what we do are not are not so much on the short time scale, but on the long time scale. And because we need to understand that there's not only us on this planet, you know? I think that's the most difficult uh, job for us as a human because sometimes, I mean, for me, for example, right now, it's very hard to say what I will be doing in the five, ten years, let alone 50, 100 years, what's there will be or there will not be. And to think of a small human whose lifespan is around 70 years, but then to act like your house lifespan, if we're talking about Earth in this case, it's billion upon billion years, then it's, we are teeny tiny. And... But we're very powerful. That's the problem. But that's the irony in all of this. We are teeny. Our life means nothing on the earth. But our actions, 
who you are looking at a whole lot of problems sometimes and a lot of good in some case of people. But also going back to what you said that um, we do feel like one and uh, with nature and what uh, the poem said. Recently, I came back home and I uh, was living in the mountain region of Poland for almost my whole life. So I'm used to seeing mountains and hills and forests and green hills without forest. Plenty. Even whenever I would go to my grandma, because um, my city, which is the capital of our region, is a bordering with uh, mountains. So you go out of the city for like five minutes with a car and you are in the mountains. And my grandpa lives, uh, and my grandma lives south of us. So this is where you can say, okay, we are maybe not in the mountains, but the hilly region. And here in Nierechaza, it's completely flat. Which at the beginning, I didn't thought that I would have problems with. But since we are traveling so much and I'm traveling as well, uh, whenever I go, it's just like flat. There are sometimes some trees, some houses, maybe a city and the flat and the flat. And I, whenever I have to go back home, I need to take a bus because I live so close and so far away that there is no plane or there is no point for me going with plane. So I'm going through Slovakia and oh, the mountains. And when I was going back, I started traveling at like... 1 p.m. so like the sun was up I could see everything and just the seeing the mountains for the first time since half a year oh it was so beautiful to me and just seeing them not even exploring them because I love hiking in the mountains this is one of the things that I love to do for the summer vacation and just looking at them from the bus it was like okay now I'm home it's beautiful you know, it's funny because even with weather, it happens to me because my city is very foggy um, in the winter, especially. So but, you know, it's a particular kind of fog, you know, and sometimes I remember in my life it didn't happen that often, of course, but I remember precisely the few times when I was living somewhere else and the fog really looked like home and thinking, oh, it's home. And and feeling I belonged, you know, and feeling, oh, home came to see me today. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. And I... I think that we are kind of trained not to n notice the connectedness we personally feel with uh, the weather or with the landscape, but it's absolutely something. It's completely natural, you know. <laughs> like I mean, of course, of course, it's it's just we. I think we humans like to recognize things. And in general, the things we recognize, the people we recognize, are the things and the people that make us feel at home, you know? It's funny. Sometimes I 
hear people say, I don't know, when they meet somebody and there is a great alchemy, great affinity between them, to say, I recognize you even though I never met you before. I think it's kind of the same with Nature. feeling, you know? It just feels like something you belong to. It could be a person, it could be a landscape, it could be, I don't know, weather. But it definitely um, brings back to us the realization that there is a deeper connection. And I, I want to read you this passage that I find absolutely brilliant uh, because... Um, This was written by a biologist. His name is uh, David, George, David George Haskell. And actually, last year, 2017, he published this book, which is called The Songs of Trees. And um, uh, we can say I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit prejudiced against lyrical prose um, combined with science, Uh, but it's true that it's beautiful. I mean, since Rachel Carson in the 1960s, when she wrote um, her ode to ecology um, in The Silent Spring, there has been kind of a wave of scientists uh, resorting to very lyrical prose, very poetic prose, to uh, describe natural phenomena. Some people say it's not really scientific, uh, but it's true that it gets to you, really. It gets to you. It gets to people who are not really um, scientists, you know, who are not really, a, you know, very specialized in that field. And basically in this book, he goes around looking for trees. I want that job. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's really, really good. And he's looking uh, for a wisdom that he calls ecological aesthetics, which is a view of beauty not as an individual property, but as a relational feature of the web of life. And he writes this, and I think it's absolutely beautiful. We're all trees, humans, insects, birds, bacteria, pluralities. Life is embodied network. These living networks are not places of omnibenevolent oneness. Instead, they are where ecological and evolutionary tensions between cooperation and conflict are negotiated and resolved. These struggles often result not in the evolution of stronger, more disconnected selves, but in the dissolution of the self into relationship. Because life is network, there is no nature or environment separate and apart from humans. We are part of the community of life, composed of relationships with others. So the human nature duality that lives near the heart of many philosophies is, from a biological perspective, illusory. We are not, in the words of the folk hymn, wayfaring strangers traveling through this world, nor are we the estranged creatures of Wordsworth lyrical ballads fallen out of nature into a stagnant pool of artifice where we misshade the beauteous form of things. Our bodies and minds, our science and nature, are as natural and wild as they ever were. We cannot step outside life's song. This music made us. It is our nature. 
our ethic must therefore be one of belonging, an imperative made all the more urgent by the many ways that human actions are fraying, rewiring, and severing biological networks worldwide. To listen to trees, nature's great connectors, is therefore to learn how to inhabit the relationships that give life its source, substance, and beauty. And it's amazing how he proves that the forests, he's investigating forests in particular, are not a collection of entities, but a network of relationships. And you know, it's funny because a couple of days ago, there was a video by the BBC where it talked about the wood wide web. Basically, <laughs> I mean, if you know that trees in general they share resources and information yes. with each other sometimes there are parasites sometimes there are trees that are more aggressive on others so instead of sharing their food they will take the food away from others but there is a network like under the earth where trees communicate and um they call it the wood wide web because it's amazing how trees actually sustain each other. I mean, just think about a tree that is very big. And there are smaller trees at its side, which are more shaded by this big tree. So the big tree shares some of the food to the smaller the small ones. And it's, I mean, why would trees behave in such an altruistic way? Why would they help each other? I mean, also, for instance, if a plant is being attacked by parasites, it will uh, share information with the, tree, the trees and the plants around it to say, hey, guys, build up your defenses because I have parasites. I'm probably going to be injured by them. But now you know, you know, it's amazing. It is. But that's how you survive. I mean, because the whole point, if plants had brains, their main focus would be, I need to preserve my species. This is what we are doing every day. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Just in the slightly more aggressive way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it depends on what you mean by species. If you mean a rich, uh, heterosexual, white men, yeah, we're doing it. We're doing a great job. Absolutely. Yes. And, um, but I mean, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. But that's how life goes on. It's just fascinating for me. And um, one of the examples of the great forests, I was um, in São Miguel Island, the Portuguese island. And there is one place, and I will butcher probably because I don't know Portuguese, uh, Furnas, if I remember correctly. It's a small town. It's a very small town. But it's uh, famous because the whole island is built on three uh, volcanoes that are not sleeping, but they're not active uh, in the last couple of years. And because of that, the soil is very rich because of the past eruptions that were there. But also, because there are volcanoes, there is hot water natural hot springs and in this place there's one big spa kind of thing with so there it's popular to go there for the spa but except for the spa that must be awesome i don't know i wasn't not there 
there is a um, mountain. And you can, can go to the top of the mountain to see the, the whole island if you have luck of not being foggy because, you know, water evaporates, clouds form. But to go there, you are going through enormous forest. And when uh, I was there, it was kind of raining, but kind of not, kind of foggy. But you don't know if it's a fog or a cloud because you are already on the high altitude. And I was going up through the forest. There is a path for you, for a human being to cross. And you are going under the trees like you need to... Uh, duck down because the tree has fallen down or there's these big plants with big leaves and you need to like slightly lift them up to pass and because there was that kind of watery environment around us you could hear the forest and it was amazing usually I go because as we mentioned in the last episode I am addicted to music so usually I will listen to music but in this place I turn off all of the music and at some point I sat down on the trail and just started listening and you can hear there's some bird here, there's some bird there, there's leaves moving, there's water dripping, there's this, there's that. And it was just amazing. You could hear the forest talking with each other, with all the plants, all the smallest plants and bugs and parasites to the big tree I even took a picture there's there was a tree when I was sitting it looked like a jungle especially with the fog with everything so the trees were like 10 meters high probably you could not see any of the sky but it was just amazing to hear everything hear every sound and the wind and the water oh it was so beautiful amazing really no but it's true also it's funny when i don't know if it's the same for you or if it depends on where you grow grew up when you think of nature you immediately think of a forest no mountains mm, mountains there you go It's weird, isn't it? Like because I'm sure that for somebody who grew up near the sea, they would definitely think sea, of the sea. sea, yeah. And the sea is whoa, another one of the we know nothing about what's going on underwater. That's true. Nothing. Recently, I saw a video, and they discovered a jellyfish, but it lives in the deep waters when there's like pitch black, and turns out the jelly glows in the dark, and it has like all the colors it looked amazing and scientists were like well we don't know what is that yeah we need to name it it's amazing <laughs> like i mean this whole big 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 quantity of water basically sustains us all but we have no idea how it works what's going on in there and um But I want to ask you a question. Why do you think you think forest first for the nature? I mean, I think of trees in general. I don't think forest in the sense of... Um, big area big of... forest, you yeah. know, with pine trees and stuff. I think of trees. Yeah. Woods in general. For me, uh, like I said, if somebody says like, oh, we will go for the to the nature... Mountains. mountains, mountains, hills, N 
there will be trees, of course, and to some degree forests, but this is not my main focus. But I think it's, like I said, because of the fact that I grew up in the hilly yeah. region yeah, and so we it's... would go to mountains. Like, there's a story. Oh, my God. I'm infuriated by the story and I remember exactly what happened. My family laughs every time. So imagine um, being, I think I was like four or five years old. So a very small kid. And we we are going to the mountains because our family would go to hike since like before I was born. And there is a one, uh, it's a shelter in the mountains. And the shelter, it's called um, the Winnie the Pooh Cottage in Polish. And of course, me being four-year-old, five-year-old kid, we are going to Winnie the Pooh. Oh, my God. <laughs> and my parents, everybody, everybody in my whole family, there's an even family picture from that mountain, and I can name every who was there, and I hold a grudge for this to this day. And everybody was, and I remember this, being five-year-old kid, um, like, oh, we will go to see Winnie the Pooh. Nobody said anything that there is no Winnie the Pooh and it's just the name. Oh no, really? So imagine me being five-year-old kid and uh, we With went false there. False expectations. <laughs> and because the amazing thing was that I climbed that mountain myself. Nobody held me. Like nobody picked me up. So I was too tired because I was going to see Winnie the Pooh. Oh my god! And then we come inside and there is just information and like touristic stuff i was devastated okay and i was there sitting and even i think on that picture i'm not smiling at all (laughs) and every time and even now i'm 23 whenever somebody would mention that story i would like you liars (laughs) (laughs) so this is a very strong like i remember Everything. I remember the route that we took, and oh, and everybody's laughing. But you made it. I don't care. You are liars. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe also when I think it's mountains. Yeah, but it's true that like in general, especially kids, uh, or in mythology or in folk culture, nature, be it the sea, be it the forest, be it the mountain. Uh, is always kind of associated with magical creatures. Um, just think of, I don't know, mermaids. Or uh, what are they called? There's, uh, oh my God, in Ireland and in the Celtic culture, they have these... Uh, druids. No, no, they're seals. They they transform into seals. But anyway, so they have these mythical creatures in Ireland in the northern seas. But they have, you know, like the little dwarves in yeah. the mountains. So well, I have like a whole Bieszczady region, which is the, the hilly mountain region that I grew up with. There's books upon books upon books about legends and uh, who is in the forest or who is not in the forest. Don't go after the dark because this creature will get you or in this region is this creature. And like, who? Yeah, because I think that in general nature, human beings have always understood that. I mean, not always, of course, but in primitive more primitive times human beings have always understood that 
nature is not their jurisdiction. If the mountain, if the sea, if the forest wants to kill you, it, it will. will. So you need, first of all, to pay respects. And second of all, you need to be fearful. You need to be aware that you have no power over what will happen. And um, we have uh, lost this kind of mentality once we started to, you know, have more technological means. But to I don't think every place on the earth lost it because um, one of the... And this is how the EVS is so small. One of the EVOs, EVS volunteers that I had the um, pleasure to meet, she is French, but she grew up in Guadeloupe Islands, which is still France. Yeah. It's just in Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, in there, she lived in the bigger island. But still, uh, she said that they have legends and stories that to this day, mothers and grandmothers are telling to the kids and grandkids about how if you go after dark the mermaid uh, are coming out and they're kidnapping uh, people and actually the I don't know even if it's the origin of the story but um, what she said it's if you grow up then you'll realize you're telling the stories to the kids because it's there's a lot of violence on the island so this is just a cautionary tale for the kids to not go out uh, to unknown uh, parts of the city uh, after the dark yeah but they're doing that using the mermaids yeah. that the ocean is like there because mm-hmm. the island is small it's an island of course yeah. so the mermaids are going out of the ocean and they're bringing kids or the witches or something else but they're still using it mm-hmm. so the nature is still used yeah. to be like fear it because yeah. it will kill you if it wants well i mean if you talk with anybody who's a professional mountain climber or a professional i don't know like sailor of course people who know the nature they work in um will tell you will know will know how powerful it is and of course you are a completely stupid person if you want to climb a mountain without without the the right equipment uh without planning everything accordingly without being careful of the weather of course yeah it's not really about the people who live the nature it's mostly about the people who manage (laughs) nature yeah that's a nice way to say Um, it (laughs) yeah i mean um yeah if i am you know a multinational company and i want to put i don't know like a firm some somewhere a factory uh and i want to pollute um the waters of this place i won't care but um of course, those are not people who live the nature they they exploit. I think that in the word exploitment, there is a measure of distance between the exploiter and the exploited um, that doesn't allow the exploiter to realize what they are doing, uh, nor to actually realize what is the true balance of powers there. Because if I want to pollute a river, the river can absolutely very easily turn against you 
of course, but you're not really aware there is this distance when you exploit something or somebody. I think like with the case of uh, many exploitation, bullying as well, and some of this when there is a power difference, you need to be on the other end to realize what is actually happening. Absolutely. You need because to be, yeah. if you're not for you it's normal yeah well because my my office is in a corporate building in manhattan and uh my factory is uh right in the middle of this river in uh, argentina in the pampa <laughs> of course i won't realize it yeah no but it's true and i think <sighs> you know it's interesting because fortunately at some you know corporate levels um some of like i have heard writers especially and philosophers being employed by like really big corporate you know companies um to come and do courses on mindful mindful management yeah and i think this is a good thing of course it's not not really you know common it's not really so spread out. but it's it's starting. starting maybe because they realize that if they are mindful towards also their employees they will work better it's always in a in a mindset of profit of course if you allow them to work in a better workplace uh, they will work better so they will produce more so of course the mindset is always very very you know capitalist but the idea is uh, not so bad after all and um, it involves also a mindful approach towards all the rest you know mm, uh, let's hope that you know more it will spread yeah a little bit more well for me uh, i don't look necessarily at why are you doing certain stuff if you're doing good even because you want to get richer i think it's okay because you are preserving in this case that a little bit of nature that you are responsible for so why not yeah it's uh, complicated it, <laughs> of course it's complicated you know that actually like i discovered always thanks to that wonderful podcast on being that the first person to actually walk on the ground of the ocean First of all, was a woman, and that's that's very, very nice. A woman called Sylvia Earle, um, and it was in 1979. And I'm thinking, land exploration began as soon as mankind Human, yeah. began, but water exploration, the oceans exploration, only started really, really very it's recently. It's like 40 years, less than 40 years. 1979. That was the first time a woman, a person. It's funny because when we say a woman, it's it's implied that a man has done it before. So I yeah. need to specify a person to say it was the first person. See how language can be very sexist. But anyway, uh, so the first person on to walk on the ground, uh, on the ocean ground was... Um, Selby Earl in 1979. Amazing, right? Yeah. So that also accounts for why we know so so little of the ocean, of the yeah. waters. Yeah. Uh, I 
I want to, maybe not for the end end, but for the future end of the episode, there is another video that I want you to Google. Um, it's from National Geographic this time. And it's a, actually, it's a commercial that they did in 2008, I think. They had a whole um, set of advertisements. The world is just awesome and part of it they had two commercials that you can watch on youtube and of course we will as well link it on the facebook because it's whenever i remember about it i'll google every time and every time then i will be humming that song throughout the whole day today is the same because i listen to it in the morning there's a song that they created mixing the lyrics of another song with the melody of another song I am not entirely sure on the details, but um, the the song is boom diara boom diara, <laughs> and there are people. It starts with two astronauts in the cosmos, and it's like uh, they are talking, and it's like they are looking at the Earth from from the cosmos. So the Earth is tiny compared to when you are actually on the ground. The pale blue dot. Yes. Yeah. And um, they're talking and it's like the word is like just awesome. Like if you look from outside and they decided that it's a worthy of a song, which it's it's stupid, but it's so great. And um, there are a couple of versions, but the first version that was released, it's um, every line is sung by a different person and there is different image to it. So it's, I love the mountains, I love the clear blue skies, I love big bridges, I love great white uh, flies. I love the whole world and all its sights and sound. Boom, diara, boom, diara. <laughs> and I guarantee you, if you listen to that song for two times, because there are two commercials on YouTube, you'll be singing that song. <laughs> and... It's like the small things there, well, small and big things, because then it's like, I love the oceans. I love real dirty things. I love to go fast. I love Egyptian kings. I love the whole world and all its craziness. So this is like, oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And then boom, the era, boom, the era. <laughs> <laughs> that, that boom, the yeah. era is just, you know, speaking about songs, actually, I think it was on Vox. Uh, Vox released when Blue Planet Do, uh, 2 by the BBC was uh, came out. Um, they released on Vox this interview to Tom York of Radiohead and Hans Zimmer because they were the one who uh, arranged the theme song for Blue Planet 2. And it's actually an, um, an arrangement of a Radiohead song. And I assure you, the reasons why they chose to arrange it in those ways are super interesting because they tried to do something that was um, kind of on theme with this whole idea of nature. And it's absolutely amazing. Maybe we could, again, <laughs> you know, share the link on our Facebook page. Yeah, I, I saw that video when it came out, but uh, because I l listen, I watch everything from Vox because it's really, really interesting. That to... was super interesting. Really. And I saw that video without seeing the Blue Planet because I still need to watch it. And I think since I have a long weekend, I think I will do it over the weekend. Because also the problem with the, the Blue Planet, well, it's not a problem, it's a pleasure. But 
if I'm watching a movie or a TV show or whatever, I can do other things as well. Sometimes you can look away. But with the Blue Planet, you have to, you have stay, to there. stay there and watch. And I watched a um, short, uh, like I think first 10 minutes of the first episode. And I just saw the... Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny how in so many interviews, normal people will say it was Blue Planet that made me aware of my impact on uh, Yeah, the but planet. even the, this Blue Planet, it took them years to of course. short everything. And like the Blue Planet before that was what, 2006? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had uh, a really... I was mesmerized by uh, Sebastião Salgado's series of photography, um, Genesis. Uh, I saw it at an exhibition uh, in Italy. And I also saw the documentary, The Salt of the Earth. It's absolutely incredible. Incredible. He stated that he wanted to, he basically made a journey across the whole of the earth to find places that looked as they would in his imagination at the, the day that the earth was created. So he went to the North Pole. Like it, There's a lot of animals. There's also some uh, primitive uh, tribes in Africa or in South America and Central America. And... Um, it's absolutely incredible. I, I have shivers even now to think about it because it's it was the f the pictures are amazing, and he um, in the salt of the earth he explains that he wanted to do this uh, photo series because he the previous two uh, series he had done were on migrants, and he had followed very closely in particular the um, civil war in. Um, in Burundi and he said that that experience injured him so much that he needed to do something he needed to find proof on this earth that there is beauty and it's absolutely incredible and I think that the blue planet and also photography what Sebastião Salgado does can allow us to be aware of that beauty and how much we can do to preserve it. But I think this is why, as we talked in the photography episode, um, as you know, I focus a lot on the um, nature as well. Just because some of the things that you can see, which they're just there, and they're amazing and beautiful, and capturing that is, oh, it's... It's so joyful to be able to do that and to be able to to see later then. Because sometimes with the photography, sometimes you forget what kind of pictures you took. <clears throat> but I, um, from time to time, I like to go through my Instagram feed, my own Instagram feed, just, just to see the pictures that I took and just to remember. And, and I, I do remember taking them, but you just forget that you took them in the moment and to explore them again to see the wonders of nature it's it's amazing yeah it is can i read a poem yes you can just you know a little treat 
This is at the end of the episode by Mary Oliver, whom I have quoted extensively. As you haven't, un- if you haven't understood, she's probably not. She's definitely my favorite living artist. And um, this is a poem on what we were talking about before: the belonging, you know. And it's called Wild Geese, and it's one of her most famous poems. So, Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Aww. And with that, I think we cannot stop this poem and anything that was said in here. So uh, we will thank you for spending the hour with us, as always. And as always, you can write to us. You can write to our email, ourperspective.podcast at gmail.com or our Facebook page as well. We are almost always there, uh, either me or Bea. And we will, of course, reply to you extensively. <laughs> yeah, long replies. Yeah, but I mean, it means that if you want to write long answers, long questions, I mean, you can. Yeah, feel by free. all means, feel free. And we will spend time to answering uh, to your lovely questions and um, inquiries and reviews. And with that... Thank you so much for spending time with us and we will see you next Friday. Thank you so much.